Hey, Grace Community, thanks for letting me be a part of your spiritual journey today. This is Palm Sunday weekend, which leads us into the most holy of weeks for followers of Jesus. And I'm just praying that this week is an opportunity for you and me really to create some extra space to ponder what Jesus has done for us and to spend some extra time seeking him. We as a church have created some cool opportunities to do that this week. You can go on our app and explore these. There's a worship and prayer night, Palm Sunday evening. There's a 24-7 prayer opportunity where you can sign up for a 30-minute time slot during that week, um, during this upcoming week to seek the Lord. There's a prayer guide we have created for that. There are also some some prayer videos that we're going to be posting each day on our app. And then, of course, we have our Good Friday and Easter services. I'm anticipating that God is going to meet us in significant ways this week, starting right now on this Palm Sunday weekend. It was on Palm Sunday that Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey with crowds of people praising him. And we're told by Matthew that in doing this, Jesus was fulfilling a specific Old Testament prophecy from the book of Zechariah. Here's the prophecy. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey. Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king. And yet five days later, he would be hanging on a cross. What, what kind of king is this? And what kind of kingdom is he establishing? Well, that's what we are exploring together in this current teaching series entitled Kingdom Culture. In this series, we are looking at a very famous sermon that Jesus gave um, in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. It's often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And what, what Jesus is doing in this sermon is describing for us exactly what his kingdom looks like, what it looks like to be people of his kingdom rather than the kingdom of this world. And as we have been seeing over and over again, the kingdom that Jesus invites us to embrace is completely counter to the values of this of the kingdom of this world. This world values, you know, self-sufficiency and powering up to win arguments and and forcing our opinions on others and looking down on people who don't meet our standards. In contrast, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are gentle, those who demonstrate mercy. For the kingdom of God belongs to people who live according to these values. Well, today we find ourselves in verse 8 of Matthew 5, where our King Jesus states another value of his kingdom. Here's what he says. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In this statement, Jesus is highlighting the kingdom value of purity, of holiness. Now, unfortunately, those words, purity, and holiness, they often have a kind of a negative connotation for many Christians. Because when we hear these words, we tend to think of rule keeping and restrictions, you know, no fun. You're feeling guilty for not measuring up. I'm, honestly, these words can feel burdensome, unreachable, and, and uninspiring. Which is why Jesus' statement here in verse 8 is so important because he helps us completely reframe our understanding of purity and holiness. 
So two weeks ago, those of you who kind of live in this area, you know that two weeks ago we experienced Snowmageddon, uh, this massive snowstorm that hit on Saturday night and then and, and on Sunday dropping at least a foot of snow in, in Greeley. And on, on Sunday morning, I woke up and I looked outside and I saw massive, some massive tree limbs that had broken off of our large elm tree. <clears throat> and so then I started to look at our other trees and bushes um, in, our, in our backyard and I saw how many of their branches were just laid laden down with this wet, heavy snow. It looked like their branches could break at any moment. So I threw on some warm clothes, grabbed a a broom, and I went out into the 35-mile-an-hour snowy wind, and I just started knocking the snow off the branches. And the response was immediate. These branches just started suddenly lifted. They, they They were freed to be who they were created to be. They immediately rose to their true position. It was an amazing feeling to go around rescuing these trees from this excessive burden of snow that was threatening to break their branches, but now their branches were free and elevated and and full of life. That is a much more accurate picture of what Jesus is inviting us to experience when he talks about holiness. Holiness is not a restrictive Excuse me, holiness is not a restrictive constraint that weighs us down. That's what the world believes about and thinks about holiness. You know, that in pursuing holiness, we're missing out on all sorts of fun and life. No, no, no. Jesus flips that idea on its head and lets us know that the opposite is actually the truth. What, what keeps us weighed down, what, what breaks the branches of our lives and keeps us from living in freedom and joy is not holiness. What keeps us weighed down is our sin, our self-centered patterns of living, our impatience, our anger, our lust, our greed, our tendency to bend the truth in order to protect our image. Those are the things that weigh us down. Those are the things that constrict us and rob us of joy and freedom. Those are the things that mess up our lives. See, what Jesus is doing in this beatitude is is inviting us, he's inspiring us to get the snow off our branches so that we can be who God created us to be and who we long to be. See, another word for holiness is wholeness. Jesus invites us to experience wholeness of life, freedom from the sinful patterns that are destroying us. Don't believe the world's lie that holiness is this outdated, prudish, restrictive thing. Holiness, wholeness is the life that we long for. It's the life that we were created to experience. And this beatitude shows us how. It shows us the way. It shows us how to cultivate a life in which sin no longer weighs us down and robs us and restricts us. Okay, so back to this beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Okay, so what does Jesus mean by this phrase, pure in heart? Let's start with the word pure. It's the Greek word katharos. Now, the only reason I mention that is not to impress you with my knowledge of Greek, which is not very impressive. The reason is because of what the word sounds like. Katharos. Sounds like our word catharsis, right? That this word speaks of being cleansed, being pure. And no surprise there, right? But what's significant is what Jesus adds to this word, the pure in heart. He doesn't say, blessed are the pure in behavior. 
Blessed are those who do moral things. He doesn't say that. Why? Because Jesus knew that genuine holiness flows from the heart. But that's not how most people view holiness. See, for most people, holiness is about external behavior. It's, it's what we might call don't cross the line holiness. So in, in don't cross the line holiness, holiness is all about following a list of external rules. Don't swear, don't cheat, don't lie, don't have sex before marriage, do pray, do give, do be nice to people. I mean, this is how many Christians define holiness. It's all about behaving the right way. Now, there are, there are several problems with this approach. For one thing, we can technically do the right thing, but for the wrong reason. Later in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to call out these Pharisees who pray in public, right? They're praying. It's a good thing. But they do so, they're doing so in public in order to be seen as spiritual by other people. So their external holy behavior isn't motivated by a pure heart. And Jesus sees right through that. Later in Matthew 15, verse 8, Jesus says this of the Pharisees. He says, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. See, Jesus is not impressed by moral deeds that are done for a, with, a, with a selfish motive. They're, they're done to kind of further our own pride or our own agenda or whatever. Okay, so that's one problem with this don't cross the line approach to holiness. But there's another problem with this approach. When we view holiness as this line that we're not supposed to cross, what inevitably happens is that we create all these hypocritical um, we, well, we create this really this, this hypocritical holiness where we focus on certain behave, certain behaviors as being holy, but we conveniently ignore other behaviors. So, for instance, don't have sex before you're married. That's certainly biblical and research supports that choice as being beneficial to the relationship. But what many Christians do is turn that into Anything is okay as long as there technically isn't intercourse. Clothes are off, hands are everywhere, but praise God, we haven't crossed the line. We're good. <laughs> or another example, you know, telling the truth um, and not lying. That's, that's the line, right? We're supposed to tell the truth and not lie. That's the line. But what, what, but what about when we're doing our taxes and we choose to not report certain income? Well, that doesn't count because the government already takes too much of our money. You know, we're just kind of bending the truth a little bit. You see, when, when we have a don't cross the line approach to holiness, we, we start justifying all sorts of sinful behaviors because they technically don't cross our line. And we end up tolerating things that are not life-giving, things that don't lead to wholeness of life. Now, there, there's one other problem with this don't cross the line approach to holiness. It, it inevitably leads to what I would call a white knuckle response. We focus all of our energy on not crossing the line. We're going to white knuckle it, cold showers, sheer willpower, deny yourself, take up your cross, have 10 accountability partners. I am not giving in. So holiness then becomes this never-ending battle, this constantly trying to resist these desires within. Now, please hear me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not minimizing the spiritual battle we're in, but, but sometimes this white-knuckle approach can actually cultivate a self-hatred, a distrust of our hearts, feeling like we're always warring against ourselves. And then if we do give in, 
the shame and the guilt get piled on even further, so we promise to white-knuckle it better next time. I mean, friends, is, is that the life Jesus invites us to live? Is that how we experience genuine holiness? I hope not. And thankfully, it's not. Thankfully, no. From Jesus' perspective, this, this white-knuckling, external behavior-focused holiness, externally behavior-focused holiness, is not the way we experience genuine holiness, which is why Jesus calls us to something much deeper and far more substantial. He calls us to purity of heart, to purity of heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. See, for Jesus... Genuine holiness flows from the heart. It's an inside job. The, the heart is at the core of our being. It's the location of our, our desires, our longings, our passions. And the Bible tells us that when we place our faith in Jesus, we get a new heart. <clears throat> this is at the core of the new covenant described in the Old Testament book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, where God says, I will, in this new covenant, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. The prophet Ezekiel talked about how God will take our heart of stone and give us a heart a flesh, a soft heart. See, in Christ, our heart is redeemed. We have a new heart. It is redeemed. People often quote that verse, you know, from Jeremiah 17, that our hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Friends, that's the old, that's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. That's before Jesus. In Christ, we are given a new, redeemed heart. And that new heart is filled with the desires that God has placed there. So to be pure in heart is to live out of this place of those redeemed and good desires. Jesus is saying holiness is not about duty as much as it is about desire which changes our whole approach to holiness. The, the key question for holy living is not, how do I keep from doing this sinful behavior? No, no, no. The key question for holy living is this, what do I want? What do I really want? In his book, Surfing for God, Michael Cusick talks about the first time he went to a Christian counselor to talk about his struggle with pornography he told his counselor, I'm really struggling with lust and wanting to look at porn. And the, the counselor said, well, if what you really want to do is look at porn, then go ahead and look at porn. And Michael was like, yeah, right. Like, I'm going to do that. And the counselor said, no, I'm, I'm serious. If what you really want to do is look at porn, then go ahead and do it. And Michael was like, hold it. You're a Christian counselor. Is this some kind of reverse psychology or paradoxical treatment you're trying on me? The counselor just stared at him. So finally, Michael said, look, I don't get it. Why are you telling me to go ahead and look at porn? And then in his frustration, Michael hit his fist on the chair and said, that's not what I want to do. And the counselor smiled and said, exactly. That's the point. Looking at pornography is not what you really want to do. You see, underneath every desire to sin is a deeper desire, one that is rooted in holiness and the heart of God. Michael realized that his looking at porn was really rooted in his longing for acceptance, 
a way to numb the pain of his shame and self-hatred. But, but of course, all he did, all, after giving into porn, all he did by doing that was add to his shame and add to his feelings of being unacceptable. The longings in your heart for acceptance, for significance, for love, for value, for wholeness and freedom, those are all good things. Those are God-given desires. But what happens is those good desires in our hearts, they get hijacked by our flesh. We start looking to other things to meet this ultimate longing in our heart. So, for instance, we lie to people or we exaggerate our resume so that we look better in order to feel more accepted. Or we, we struggle to be financially generous because spending money on ourselves helps us feel more secure. Or we get angry at people because we're afraid of being overlooked or ignored. But the irony is, while these behaviors feel good in the moment, soon afterwards, we feel less secure, less acceptable, less whole. These behaviors don't satisfy. Jesus is inviting us into an experience of holiness that looks beneath our sinful choices to see what it is we really long for. And in that longing, we choose to look to Jesus for those longings to be met. See, one of the most powerful things we can do when we're struggling with some sin, like lust or jealousy or gluttony or lack of generosity with our money or whatever, one of the most helpful things we can do in our struggle with some sin is to stop, just to stop for a moment and with the help of the Holy Spirit, ask ourselves, what is this behavior providing for me? What need am I really trying to satisfy? Rather than white-knuckling it or shaming ourselves for desiring this sin, we instead are looking beneath. We're looking in our hearts and we're, we're, we're acknowledging the good desires that are there and we're letting Jesus be the one to satisfy those good desires that have been hijacked by some sinful behavior. So let me, let me put this another way. Purity of heart is ultimately about singleness of devotion. Purity of heart is ultimately about singleness of devotion. It's about us having an undivided heart that is focused on one thing, loving Jesus. See, this is why St. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, he once wrote this, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that when you are cultivating in your heart a passionate love for Jesus, first and foremost, your desires will naturally align with his desires, which means that holiness will be what you want to do and what you want to experience. Our holy choices will flow out of the ultimate desires of our heart. I saw this principle vividly on display last week while watching the finale of The Bachelor. Now, I'd never watched an entire episode of The Bachelor and really had no interest in doing so, even though lots of my you know, friends and people in my life love that show. But we had a friend who was staying with us that week, and she wanted to watch the finale. And so Raylene, my wife Raylene, who also hadn't seen any of the episodes, she was going to watch with her. And so then Raylene looked at me, and in that little sweet voice that wives, you know, pull out every once in a while said, would you want to watch with me? Uh, so there I was watching the finale 
of this season of Bachelor, The Bachelor, where this very handsome single guy named Matt started the season with like 30 beautiful women to choose from. And then over the course of the season, he is narrowing it down to the woman he hopefully is going to propose to. Okay, so the first thing I see in this finale, this final episode, is this really nice chauffeur-driven car that pulls up to Matt's house and out steps Michelle. This beautiful woman, they kiss and hug. He tells her how much he loves her. She goes in to meet the family. Everything goes great. She gets in the fancy car, drives away. I was like, this is going to be over pretty quick. Not so fast. Because after a commercial, I watched as a second nice limo pulls up and out steps Rachel, who is also a very beautiful woman. And they kiss and hug and he tells her how much he loves her. And I'm like, hold on, this man is in serious trouble. He is in serious trouble because he has given his heart away to two women, both of whom have given their hearts to him. And if you saw the finale, you know that it went downhill from there. His own heart being confused and then breaking their hearts, it was painful to watch. When a heart can't decide who it's devoted to, it creates lots of confusion and pain and waffling and questionable decisions and heartache. I mean, the sad irony is he ended up with no one. Matt ended up with no one. In fact, someone told me that out of the 41 seasons of The Bachelor that have happened, only six of the relationships have actually worked out. Six out of 41. So, so as, as I was processing, as I was later just thinking about the show and processing what happened to Matt, I couldn't help but be struck by the spiritual parallels. When our heart is divided, it creates confusion, which is why Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who have an undivided heart for Jesus, who are looking to Jesus alone to fill the longings and desires of their soul. See, when that is our focus at a heart level, it has a huge impact on how we live. We're no longer focused on not crossing the line. We are joyfully focused on how awesome Jesus is and how he satisfies the longing of our heart. This is how Jesus describes the impact of having this heart posture. Look at this. This is how he says what the impact is. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I love the way he words that. Purity of heart, the singleness of devotion enables us to see God more clearly. Now, it's, it's not that God moves when we sin. It's not that he removes himself from us. He doesn't. But he is harder to see. When we're giving in to sin, it creates this fog in our minds and our hearts. It, it, it is, it's, it's harder to see the beauty of Jesus, and it's much easier to see the seductive pull of our sin. This link between seeing Jesus and experiencing holiness, you know, is huge. I mean, look at how the author of Hebrews describes this. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured 
the cross. I love how the author of Hebrews talks about sin being something that easily entangles us. Can anyone relate to that? (laughs) How easily we get entangled in some sin. That's such a great metaphor because it speaks to how sin operates. It it binds us. It it hinders us. It keeps us from truly living in the fullness of the life God desires for us. So how do we throw off this sin that so easily entangles? Well, the writer here tells us, by fixing our eyes on Jesus, by, by letting our hearts be captivated more and more with how amazing Jesus is, as we cultivate this through practices like biblical imaging, worship, scripture, his love becomes more real and meaningful to us than these other sins that we've gotten entangled in. And we are able to run this race of greater wholeness in him. Now, please hear me. This is not, this is not about perfection. It's about pursuit. We, we all stumble and fall at times. The question is, do we get up and again, pursue in our hearts a passionate devotion to Jesus? Or do we fall back into the white knuckling trap? See, for some of us, the best remedy in our struggle against some recurring sin is not to increase our efforts to resist that sin. No, for some of us, the best remedy in our struggle with sin is to instead choose to fill our lives with activities and things that stir in us a greater love for Jesus so that he is what we ultimately desire. I can't think of a better week to do that than this upcoming week, Holy Week. I encourage you to intentionally carve out time to be with Jesus on your own, as well as perhaps in community, to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice for you and his love demonstrated to you. Fix your eyes on him as your first love and experience the freedom, the joy, the blessing of purity of heart, of being who you long to be. Let's pray together. So I want to invite you, however you're experiencing this, I want to invite you to take a moment and let's just ask the Holy Spirit what he is wanting to say to us. Holy Spirit, what do you want to say to us? So let me just ask this, as you're listening to the Spirit, is is there an area of sin in your life that is weighing you down, that's entangling you? Maybe you've been trying to ignore it, even though you know it's robbing you of life. Or maybe you've been trying to white-knuckle it, and it's not going very well. You just feel more ashamed. You feel like a failure. You know, like like a tree whose branches are weighed down and restricted. That's how you're feeling. So if that's the case, Jesus is inviting you and me to a different experience, an experience of purity of heart. So I want you to take a moment as you're thinking about that sin, that behavior that's kind of got you entangled. Take a moment and let's just look beneath that sinful behavior and ask our heart this question. 
what need am I trying to meet through this sinful behavior? What do I really want? So now, as you've wrestled, I thought about that question, rather than beating yourself up for that sin, what if you fixed your heart on Jesus? What if right now, in this moment, you, you saw in Jesus the love and the acceptance that you long for? Feel free right now, in this moment, just feel free to imagine Jesus in front of you with his arms open wide. To you. Jesus, we want to fix our eyes on you as our ultimate treasure, our ultimate desire. Would you help us do this more and more? Would you, would you be our first love? We, we don't want to have our, a divided heart that is looking for love in various places. We want our hearts to be pure, singularly devoted to and in love with you alone because you are worthy of that. Help us cultivate a deepening love for you, not only this coming week, but in the weeks and months and years to come. We love you, Jesus. You alone meet the deepest longings in our heart, and we want wholeness. We want to walk in wholeness in life. In Jesus' name.